I want to tell you how you can make a false disciple. And there are a few ways to make false disciples. You can tell somebody, you can follow Jesus without turning from sin. That's one way to make a false disciple. Confusing someone into thinking they can have sin as their master and Jesus as their master. They can hold hands with both, living in rebellion in the world, and at the same time follow Christ. You could tell somebody, you just need to believe a few truths about Jesus without actually committing yourself to Jesus. It's no doubt a lot of people who believe historically things that are true about Jesus according to scripture and even things outside the word of God that speak about the historical Christ. Yet apart from following him, apart from trusting in him, apart from turning from sin in repentance and believing with our hearts in the living Christ, how could we be a disciple of his? Another way to make a false disciple is, look, you can, you can be a Christian if you just feel sorry for things that you've done. When in reality, we might not be so desensitized in our consciences that sin can still shame us. And we can still feel bad and guilty for things that we have committed. But a Christian knows to whom we go with our defilement and our need and our shame. We know that left to ourselves, being rightly guilty and charged for our wrongdoing and sins, we have but one hope and it is Jesus. It's not just that a Christian feels badly for the things that we have done. It is what we respond to in Christ. You could tell somebody, you can be a Christian if you just, you need to add some religion. That's what you need. You need some religion in your life. Life is incomplete, so you need to add some religious activities. And that somebody might think of themselves, well, you know, I'm a Christian because, you know, here are the various religious things I do. A fifth example of making a false disciple, you could emphasize outward behavioral change without saying that we come with our hearts before God to be changed. So outward behavior, changing apart from a heart that actually loves Jesus. You know, you can make a false disciple then if you simply look at somebody's behavior and say, modify this, tweak this, rein this in, good to go. Apart from a heart, though, that actually loves Christ, a heart that worships and loves Christ, friend, apart from that, you're just making a false disciple. A sixth way to do false discipleship is if you just emphasize, look, this is a a one-time decision, and I need you to make sure you're really sincere. Pray this prayer. Make this one-time decision. That's a way to set up false discipleship without emphasizing the need for walking with Jesus with instruction and discipleship in the body of Christ. And no doubt, many have walked the road of of false discipleship thinking themselves as those who know God when they don't follow Christ. And they look back and say, well, there was this one time, though, where I thought something, felt something, decided something that's made no impact in their lives. Is Christ so weak that to encounter him in a saving way would leave you unchanged? What sort of Christ is this? What sort of rescue would that be? What sort of redemption is that? 
It's not the gospel. That's for sure. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to save sinners. Another way to make a false disciple is you could just tell them how easy it is to follow Jesus. And then you look at today's passage in Luke 14. And if what people are selling in the name of Jesus is just, if you want a comfortable, easy life, you need to come to Christ, you must think carefully about language in Luke 14. It's among the more difficult of Jesus' sayings. Friends, let's not share Jesus in a way that makes false disciples. Let's speak all that we can about Christ, truthfully from the word about Christ. A German theologian in the early 1900s named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he wrote a very famous book called The Cost of Discipleship. And even the title of that is arresting. The Cost of Discipleship. And here's what he says. In the book, by the way, he warns against what he calls cheap grace. Here's what he means. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ. Bonhoeffer is right that there there is a cheapening of the gospel in the way this is framed. Bonhoeffer goes on to say, grace is costly because it calls us to follow Jesus. And yet it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ It's costly because it costs a man's life, but it's grace because it gives the man the only true life there is. It's costly because it condemns sin, but it's grace because it justifies the sinner. We're wanting to preach a gospel from the word of God, of the living Christ, who delivers sinners out of the bondage of iniquity, out of darkness and into light, makes them new. They're new. It's not like the old you with a slight modification. It is new life in Jesus. In verses 25 and following, Jesus wants to speak plainly and clearly that to follow him is not necessarily to choose the most popular or comfortable or easy path. Somebody might read this and say, well, Jesus obviously hasn't taken a marketing class. What's he trying to do? Get people to not follow him? Is he looking, what is he trying to not draw crowds? You see, there are great crowds accompanying him in verse 25. But he knows that it's one thing to have a lot of people around him. And then the the difference between actual disciples. Those who, with the heart and life, want to follow Jesus. In verse 25, this is a scene after a... Dinner discussion, verses 1 through 24, was a dinner scene where Jesus is speaking to religious leaders. And at the end of the verses, verses 1 through 24, he has spoken about this banquet where people are invited and people are going to come and many are going to gather. That banquet scene, I want us to think of a different metaphor now where Jesus is calling people to come to him, not so much a metaphor, I guess, but come to him like coming to that banquet, coming to the door into the kingdom. And in verse 25, great crowds accompanied him, and that's the way it was so often the case. He was very popular, such a popular teacher that people would travel from all over, not just locals, but 
all across the land, even outside the promised land. They're going to follow after Jesus. He was so intriguing, so curious. What was he going to do next, say next? Nobody knew. And Jesus turned and he said to them, if anyone comes to me, which many of them had, right? They're there. They've come to him, right? But have they come to him in the most important kind of way that he's going to unfold? They're physically present. But if anyone comes to me, he says, and doesn't hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That is such a shocking statement. We shouldn't just move past that because you're not expecting Jesus to even use the word hate. Maybe when your children were younger, you said things like, now, we don't say the word hate in this house. We don't hate things. Um, but the devil. Otherwise, don't say, I hate my sister, or I hate my brother, or I hate you, mom and dad. And things like that. You, you, that kind of talk easily coming from our mouths might have seemed very, very out of place. And Jesus here is using this word strongly to make a point. We need to let Scripture interpret Scripture. Elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus upholds the fifth commandment to honor your father and your mother. He tells us to do things like love your neighbor as yourself and love your enemies. So what he doesn't mean is he says, look, I've changed my mind. All this love stuff, I see where this is getting me. Now we're going to have a different command. I want you to hate people. Uh, You have to look in the context here and in parallel with his other teachings. He's talking about allegiance. And look at the relationships he's mentioned. They're the ones you would most expect to love. The ones that are in close proximity to you. A father, a mother, a wife, children, a brother, sister, yourself. I think elsewhere in Matthew 10, it's even clearer what he means. In Matthew 10, 37, I'm going to use this to interpret more this hate language in Luke 14. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 37, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. For Jesus to use the word hate here in Luke 14, 26, it's, it's for the purpose of shocking the audience into thinking, okay, my allegiance to Christ, it's not some light, trivial thing we're talking about. We're talking about supreme allegiance. Jesus says... If I am not supreme in your life, you cannot be my disciple. That is such a shocking statement. He didn't even say, you can't be a good disciple. Even if that little adjective was in there, somebody might say, okay, there's some wiggle room. I'm a disciple, just not a very good one. He says, you cannot be my disciple. The supremacy of Christ is the foundation element in what it means to be a disciple of Jesus in our practical lives, to live out the reality of Jesus' Lord over one's life. Prior to knowing Christ, we may have thought of ourselves as the one who called all the shots. We were the biggest authority there was, or perhaps others in our lives that we were living under. But in the end, the way we were thinking about life and what we wanted above all else and what our desires were, that's what reigned supreme. And yet we recognize in our fallen condition that many of our desires may be sinful and corrupted and lived out will bring not only harm to ourselves but ruin in the lives of others. It is a good and life-giving reality for Jesus to say, I need to be supreme in your life. It is an invitation to joy and peace. It is an invitation to life that is truly life. What is lost is the ways of dishonoring and rebelling against God that lead to our own destruction and ruin. The most loving thing Jesus does is say to sinners, let me reign supreme in your life. 
Let your allegiance to me be above all else. Because these are important relationships, we would agree. Father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yourself. Jesus isn't saying these are no longer important. But comparatively speaking, we need to be able to say like what Paul does. To live is Christ. And to die is gain. Whatever Paul thought he counted to his credit in Philippians chapter 2 and in chapter 3. All the different things that he had, especially in Philippians 3, had to his religious qualifications and credentials. He said, look, compared to Christ, what are these things? But nothing. Loss. I count them as loss compared to knowing Jesus. I think the word hate here, it's a powerful rhetorical technique. It's a way of speaking that gets your audience to say, he's serious here about things in a way that I've really got to think through. Whoever doesn't hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. Discipleship, as one writer put it, it's fundamentally a call to allegiance. That's what it is. And if your allegiance is not to Jesus Christ, I need you to hear the words of Jesus. We could rephrase them a hundred different ways. But Jesus says, if, you, if I am not the one to whom your allegiance is, you cannot be my disciple. You cannot be. And the reason is, our feet will move in the direction we are aiming at. And if Jesus is not the object of our hope and faith and the anchor for our life and soul, our lives will not move to follow him. So he's not saying, you know, you're trying to follow me, but, uh, you know, it's just not going to work out in the end. He's saying you can't even begin following me as my disciple if your life, if your hope, if your faith is not bound up in me. Your allegiance has to be to me. Otherwise, how can you think you're going this direction when your feet in life are going to take you in an entirely different one? I think he explains even more in verse 27 with the language of the cross, what he means regarding allegiance. In verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now we know Jesus is a cross-bearing savior. At the end of the gospel of Luke, he will be carrying his cross. He will be crucified on the cross. The cross is an image of execution. So now things really get uncomfortable because nobody in the crowd wants to get crucified. Nobody's stepping forward. Oh, I'll take the... Instead, they know from their experience as onlookers in this Roman society what crucifixion involves. And there you could just hear an audible gasp, no doubt, in the crowd. A big gulp collectively. What did he just say? Take up the What? People die on crosses. That sounds costly. That sounds difficult. In verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be the most uh, impressive disciple, most mature disciple, a good disciple, a great disciple. No adjectives there. Cannot be my disciple. The disciples Jesus has are the ones following him no matter the cost because their allegiance is to Jesus. Why? Because they understand who he is. They understand what he did. They understand what he's doing. They understand what God has revealed in Christ Jesus about the world and our need and his mercy to sinners. 
So the good news is not something they look at and say, well, I just don't really see why Jesus would ask us to do those things. They look at Jesus and they say, the Lord is calling me to be crucified in the sense I want to die to my old life of rebellion against God. The things that I desired that didn't please God, the ways I lived that were against the Lord. When Christ says we need to die to those things, Jesus is calling me to life. Because where does the cross lead but to life and resurrection and glory? When he says you need to take up your cross, you need to know that life is on the other side. That glory and life and resurrection power is what is on the other side of that. But left to our own sinful selves with our own wicked desires and ways, our own rebellion against God, that leads to perishing. We won't perish in our sins. And Jesus says there is a kind of dying ahead of time then that leads to life. A dying to sin, united with Christ Jesus, a bearing of the cross, if you will. Here's the way J.C. Ryle put it in the, 19, um, in the late 1800s in his commentary on Luke. J.C. Ryle says, It costs something to be a true Christian. Let that never be forgotten. To be a mere nominal Christian and go to church is cheap and easy work. To hear Christ's voice and follow Christ and believe in Christ requires much self-denial. It will cost our sins, our self-righteousness, our worldliness. It must be given up. Jesus calls us to leave what will destroy us. Thank you, Jesus, for waking me up to the reality of what sin was doing to my life. Because if Jesus says, you need to take up your cross and follow me, then I can trust the words of Jesus that he knows exactly what I need. And if he's calling me to die in a sense, he's calling me then to live in a greater sense. I can trust him with everything. I don't have to question his motives. It's the tempter who says, does God really, did he really say, does he really mean, would he really, couldn't he just be holding back? It's the suspicious words of Christ that fit on the mouths, I'm not words of Christ, words about Christ, that fit on the mouth of the tempter. It's Jesus' words that are trustworthy through and through. If sin will destroy us, then taking up the cross is a picture of dying to sin and living unto Jesus. Because that's what the model of cross and resurrection is for the saints. Following Jesus is the fruit of faith. If someone says, I can believe in Jesus, but I'm the kind of Christian who doesn't have to follow him, my friend, you're not his disciple. He says so. By his own words, he says you're not his disciple. The fruit of true faith is a following after Jesus. We are imperfect disciples. Those are the only kind Jesus has. But we want to follow him. We're a mess. (laughs) And we're fumbling around and we don't know what we're doing and we don't have it all together. But we want Jesus. He's the one we need. We weren't even after him. There we were in our miry pit of indulgence and sin and rebellion perishing. And Jesus, he came for us. His His undeserved grace reached us and pulled us out. We were deep in sin, and his mercy was even deeper. In verses 28 through 32, Jesus wants to illustrate what he means about thinking ahead of time, about following him. What I appreciate about this is Jesus doesn't treat the crowds like maybe a crooked car salesman 
who says, you know, I'm going to tell you all the good things about this car. I'm not going to tell you a thing about what might, you know, be difficult or tricky with it because I, I really just want you to take this car off the lot. That's all I really want is for you to take this car off of this lot so I can pocket that cash and then we're good to go. Jesus isn't trying to hide anything from anybody. In, in fact, he's not trying to rush the people in the crowd to say, you guys have 30 seconds to respond, ready, go. And then it's like the Jeopardy timer, on and on. And then you, instead you look at Jesus and he says in verse 28, which of you desiring to build a tower doesn't first sit down and count the cost whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Think of the things we set out to do. I mean, maybe different projects, thinking about investments, thinking about things we're trying to learn. Even if you were going on vacation, thinking about what to pack, we engage in so many things in life where we have to think ahead of time about some stuff, and that might even be exhausting, but we've got to do it on occasion. In fact, we might find ourselves regretting if we didn't. I knew I forgot to pack something. I knew I forgot to bring something. It might be those that are making lists because you know you've forgotten too many things too many times. Like, I've got I to gotta make sure I'm thinking ahead of time. Jesus says, look, I want you to think ahead of time about what I'm asking. Because if you were to build a tower, boy, you're going to be the embarrassment of the country, or at least the nearby locals. If they come by and they see this half-built tower and they wonder, what happened with this guy? Did he die? Did he not have enough money? Did he run out of energy? Did he change his mind? It's this ongoing symbol of incompleteness. That's like the person who starts out to follow Jesus and then later says, you know what, though, He says, that person, they didn't think this through. They had either committed as long as it was easy, as long as it didn't cost them their dearest sins and, and indulgences. He says, instead, think of somebody that wants to build a tower. And towers were built by people around walled cities. You wanted a tower so you could act in defensive modes in some cases, maybe just seeing the comings and goings of business transactions. A tower was raised above walls, and you would get in that tower, and you would see a lot broader, not just in the city, but outside. It was useful. It was important. It was a watchtower. In verse 29 and 30, he says, if the person doesn't sit down and count the cost, well, when he's laid the foundation and isn't able to be finished, and isn't able to finish it, then all who see him begin to mock. This man began to build and was not able to finish. Jesus sees a lot of people around him, and I, it's like Jesus is saying to the crowd, have all of you thought this through? And if I could just, the words of Jesus, repeat them or re-represent them in a paraphrase this morning to us at Cosmos Dale, I want us to think about whether we have thought all of this through. That if you would call yourself as a, a disciple of Jesus, how do his words ring in your heart today? Because he's calling you to cast your allegiance to him above all things. Who does he think he is? One writer put it this way. If we remember the first of the Ten Commandments, then Jesus' words here in Luke 14 are pretty shocking. The first commandment of the Ten says, You shall not have any other gods before me. And this is being reworded by Jesus and directed to him. Whoa! Whoa! So in some sense, this Christ, who is God in the flesh, calling people to look at him as supreme over all in their lives. They're not violating the first commandment. They're keeping it. They're keeping it. 
by obeying and following Christ, they are engaging in a heart and life of worship unto the Lord. That is what it means to not have other gods before God, to follow Christ alone. In verse 31, he gives another example. What king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? So you're already outnumbered. That's a concerning situation. But maybe there's some strategy you haven't thought of. Maybe there's some kind of flanking procedure or some kind of uh, parsing out of your troops where even against the 20,000, you could make this work. But you're you're not just going to send your people into battle and say, you know what, we're outnumbered. Let's see how this goes. Oh, the stakes are even higher. It's one thing like in the former example to just be embarrassed and mocked. It's another thing to send people to their death. It's another thing to send thousands of your troops. So he says, you know, the person, the king, and any of these other leaders, they're going to think this through. That's what you do. You weigh scenarios, and you, you consider, what if this, and then what if that? And you think of plan A and plan B, and you might have a whole host of plans. In verse 32, if not, while the other is a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. If you realize you can't triumph in the battle, you will try some other negotiation because you know it will not go well for you. But in some way, you're making decisions because you're thinking ahead of time. What verses 31 and 32 are doing is wanting us to see with even higher stakes in this illustration, the parab- these uh, examples here are like parables saying to the crowds, I invite you to follow me. Think it through. I invite you to follow me. Now, none of us knows our future. We don't know all the details of our days this coming week or month or year if the Lord tarries. So who knows? What's Jesus talking about? Jesus is saying, I want you to follow me with the understanding that sin also demands your allegiance. That fools around us set snares and temptations for us to go wayward and wandering. That there are things in this world that draw and tempt the human heart. And Jesus says, I want you to recognize that following me is not on some path where those other things have just gone up in smoke. But rather there is a warfare engaged for your heart and soul. And I want your allegiance to be to me above all. Otherwise, how could you be my disciple? There are all sorts of ways to make false disciples of, of, uh, of sinners. And that seventh and last way that I mentioned earlier, it connects to our passage this morning. Telling somebody that it's just easy to follow Jesus. How do you square that with Luke 14? The reason people would nonetheless want to follow Jesus is because they know, first of all, life is hard for everybody. But sin and folly can bring even greater harm and ruin and distress upon our lives. Whereas living with wisdom and integrity and faithfulness unto God because of the new life within us in Christ, that is a way of living before God with a cleaner conscience and with a heart seeking to know Christ in the midst of whatever trials we face. Because we know that he is with us. We know he works all these things for our good. And we know that he provides for us strength and perseverance and faith in the midst of it all. We know we can trust him. And no matter what we face, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Jesus draws a concluding statement in verse 33 from these previous ones. I get that from the language, so therefore. So therefore, any one of you who doesn't renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. 
Now, of course, apostles, even after the ascension of Jesus, continued to work. And the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts is a tent maker and plenty of others throughout church history that you could see in the centuries that followed. These are people who recognize Jesus is speaking in a way here that we don't want to over-literalize. Renouncing all that one has would mean turning from whatever one possesses and has that is standing in the way of following Christ. Because according to the rest of the New Testament, in line with the old as well, we're to be stewarding all that we have in this life for the glory of God and the good of neighbor. And I think of the rich young ruler. In Matthew, Mark, and John, these gospels, these three of the four gospels tell of a man whose love of money was so great that he refused to follow Jesus. In fact, when Jesus said, sell what you have and come follow me, the man walked away. Because in the end, if you believe that what you have is better than following Jesus, what does that say about how you see Jesus? When he says here in verse 33, any one of you who doesn't renounce all that he has can't be my disciple. It's once again a way of saying, do you see me as supreme in your life? The supremacy of Christ Jesus. This is what anchors and secures our joy and peace in the Lord. If we imagine all of our lives like a little universe, the supremacy of Christ is the sun around which everything else orbits. But if things were to go haywire and things break their rotations and planets decide, well, we're not going to do around the sun thing anymore. It's just going to be total chaos in the heavenly places. Things are designed to work this way. And we are meant to know God in Christ Jesus and to love him supremely. And here's what I think we will find. As we love Christ supremely, we will love our mothers and fathers and wives and husbands and children and brothers and sisters in better and more God-honoring ways than ever before. There's something about following Christ and loving Christ supremely that puts everything else in our lives in its proper place. Our vocations, our relationships with our neighbor, even our own personal lives and trajectories and, and, uh, and habits and patterns and disciplines. There's something about Christ above all in our lives that makes other things make sense. So we see what Christ is doing. He's calling us to cast our allegiance upon him. Our hope in him. The last illustration of the kind of person who wants to follow Christ, but not really. You see, somebody who wants to live in rebellion against God and call themselves a Christian is someone who says, I want to follow Christ, but not really. Because they, they live out the not really. They might not say it so plainly, but they live out not really. I don't really want Jesus. It's just lip service. Maybe I felt pressured. Maybe it seemed like the thing to do. Here's what I want you to know, friends, about the state of our culture in 2021. In 2021, here on May 2nd, 2021, we are living in a time where it may be increasingly difficult to live out what it means to be a Christian according to the word of God. So like a tower builder or like a king going out to war, Jesus says, if your allegiance is to me, you can't be my disciple. If your allegiance isn't to me, you can't be my disciple. Because our ultimate allegiance will be lived out according to something 
If not Jesus, something, something is in that place. Maybe self above all. What a ruin and miserous state that will end up in. Here's what he says with the image of salt in verses 34 and 35. The end of the chapter says, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Now, I've never had salt that lost its taste. Um, I, I add salt to things because you know the flavoring that that can bring. This image here, though, is for people who are very familiar with Dead Sea issues with salt. One writer puts it this way. Most salt came from the Dead Sea. And it contained things called carnalite or gypsum. And if the salt was carelessly processed, it would end up being poor tasting. And then what are you going to do with it? Jesus is saying in verse 35, it's of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It's thrown away. There's a uselessness. Here's what a useless disciple is, and therefore a false disciple. Someone who says they claim to know Christ and do not follow him. That is salt with no taste. What's the point of that? What's the point of saying with your mouth what you deny with your life? What good will that do? Besides confuse others and bring confusion on the message of the gospel and perhaps further your own delusions about yourself, you need to hear the words of Jesus. And I need to hear the words of Jesus that if I, if I want to follow Jesus, Jesus says, be all in. Don't you want to be all in for Christ? Given who he is, given what he's done, given his faithfulness and his promises, what else is worth living for? What else is worth anchoring our lives in that's not passing away or fleeting promises? What else besides Christ deserves our earthly and lasting allegiance above all things? Salt is good, but if it's lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? J.C. Ryle says, nobody is in so dangerous a state as someone who has once known the truth and professed to love it and has later fallen away from that profession and gone back into the world. It's somebody who seemed for a time to be interested in the things of Christ, but their lives have shown the truth. They did not want Jesus. We don't want to engage as Christians in the things Dietrich Bonhoeffer was warning about. Cheapening grace? That does not help people. To speak about following Jesus apart from a cross? Life in Christ apart from trust and repentance? No, these things go together. Christ Jesus saves us not by our works. His work is our hope. But the fruit of true faith will lead to a life that follows Jesus. So like a builder or like a king going to war, the words of Jesus to us this morning is, friends, let's think about this. And if our hearts, if our hearts listen to the news about Jesus and we think, I want to follow Jesus, then we need to call out for his help. And we need to pray for, his persever for persevering faith. And we need to connect to the people of God that we might walk in wisdom in the way of righteousness and obedience and life. That is the path for those who know Jesus.